1: All right, we're up to chapter five. We covered the first four chapters of the book of Luke on Sunday morning. So now we're going to uh, tonight cover chapters five, six, and seven. These next three chapters that we started on on Monday, Tuesday, and today, if you haven't read chapter 7, okay, we're going to get through it anyway, and then you can go read it tonight before you go to bed, but we're going to cover these three chapters further talking about the life of Jesus. So, as we're going through the month of December, reading a chapter a day, we will have... I uh, read all 24 chapters of the book, book of Luke on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Day, we get to come here and celebrate the birth of Jesus and finish up our series. So what we're gleaning from primarily, primarily, is the life of Jesus. What do we learn about the life of Jesus? But we're also looking at some, some examples of how his life impacted others. And how that can affect us. What can we learn? And obviously, I mean, we can't go through every little detail of the book of Luke. I'm just hitting highlights of things the Holy Spirit has just simply bringing to my heart to teach you on and share with you. Amen? So we're going to begin here at the very beginning of Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. So it was as the multitude pressed about Him, Jesus, to hear the Word of God. Man, I wish people... We're, we're trying to get in the door back here. I, I wish the place was so full that they were just pressing in to try to hear from the Lord, try to hear from God what God has to say to them. Well, you know, a lot of people say today, well, it ain't the same. Listen, if you're speaking the Word of God, it is. And honestly, this is something significant because these people were truly wanting to hear something from God. So here they are pressing in the multitudes to hear from him the word of God that he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, I've been there. I was by that area when I was in Israel. Notice this. Jesus saw two boats that were standing by the lake. But the fishermen that had obviously owned the boats had gone from them, and they were doing what? Now, when would they wash their nets? In the morning. They would fish overnight. And so in the mornings, because when they would fish, you know, stuff would get all in the nets, all different kinds of debris and stuff. That's what it means by cleaning their nets. Had to take them over to the water and get all this garbage and stuff off the nets that obviously had accumulated on the nets as they were throwing them out there and fishing overnight. Notice this, verse 3. Jesus himself then did what? <clears throat> he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Later he changed his name to what? Peter. Peter. And he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, why did he do this? <clears throat> Natural amplification system. There's so many people around him. How many you ever been anywhere where there's an ocean, you're up on the shore. And you feel that gentle breeze coming in from the ocean as the waves come in. Well, think about a person speaking. That actual breeze can carry that voice of that person on out into the multitudes, out into the congregation. So he, wanting to reach them all, knowing it would be much easier for them to hear him, if he could get a little ways out on a boat, have that wind carry his voice through the, through the crowd, would be able to reach more people. So this is the reason why he did it. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, because this is, the importance of this story right there tells you what he said at that moment wasn't the significance of what God wanted us to see. Because if it was, we would have then heard what he had to say. But it just says when he stopped speaking, now he turns to Simon. Peter, who of course later was named Peter, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Guess what you don't normally do at this time? Go fishing. they had been fishing all night. What is Jesus in the eyes? Realize Peter's not a disciple yet. He's about to become one, but he's not a disciple yet. Just a fisherman. And so as obviously Jesus speaks to him, you launch out into the deep now and you let down your nets for a catch. Now listen, in the eyes of Peter and them, it's like, listen, you're, you're a pretty, pretty powerful preacher, but we're the fishermen. You're the preacher, we're the fishermen. We know our job, we know what we're to do, right? But, but I guarantee you, Simon at this time, later named Peter, had enough respect to know and enough acknowledgement of some aspect of God revealing to him There's something significant about this guy. Thinks, well, you know what? We'll honor the preacher. We'll honor him. But did he really? So, again, notice the statement, verse four, four, please. Jesus' words. This is God speaking. Say, God speaking." God speaking. Launch out into the deep and let down, circle, highlight, or underline the word nets, please. It is plural in the original Greek. You let down your nets for a catch. Five, Simon Peter answered and said to him, Master, so he is at least acknowledging that clearly this man's some form of deity in the sense of being of true acknowledgement of hierarchy or higher leadership. Notice, we toiled all night and caught nothing. In other words, you know, we kind of know what to do here. We did go fishing all night long like we normally do, and we caught nothing. This isn't the time. So I'm just kind of saying like in that little statement, what he was saying to Jesus in his short statement. We already went out and did what we were supposed to do. When we are supposed to do it, we caught nothing. Notice this. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, underline this please, underline, at your word, I will let down the net. <laughs> Circle or highlight the word net. Jesus did not say let down a net. He said let down your nets. Right. So what we have here in an initial aspect of this encounter between Simon and Jesus is some partial obedience. Partial obedience. Okay, at your word, I'll let down the net. Now, why do you think Peter, come on, don't don't fault Peter too much here. Let's just be practical when you understand the Bible. Why do you think Peter just said, I'm going to let down one net? Why do you think he did that? Let me tell you why. Because they've been over there cleaning their nets. And if we go let down the net, you know what Peter's thinking? We ain't going to catch nothing. So what am I going to have to do? (laughs) I turn right around and go clean all these nets again. Well, I won't do that. That's that's a lot of work. I'll let down one just to, and honestly, truthfully, you know what he's about to do? He's about to encounter the miracle working power of God that happens to work all the way back to Genesis called sowing and reaping. He's about to see this miracle law affected actually in his life and work. But I guarantee you, he doesn't think it's going to happen or he would have let down nets, like he said. So he just kind of appeasing him, and he goes and he lets down the net. Verse 6, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Now watch this. There were so many, their net was breaking. Now these nets weren't small. These were big nets. Now I guarantee you, if he would have been paying attention, now he would have actually caught more fish because he would have had nets out there gathering all these fish. Imagine this. So here's, here's Jesus in the midst of this telling him to throw down a net. Now the minute he tells him to let nets, when the minute he tells him to go down and throw, throw down those nets, guess what that word is saying to the fish that are in the area? Yeah. You better show up, boys. Yeah. You get over here. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to take care of my boy Simon. He took care of me, the preacher. He loaned me his boat. He gave me use of his boat Come on. He gave me, give to the Lord, and it shall be given. So this law is in operation. These fish got no choice. They got to obey Jesus. So again, the net was breaking. Notice this. They signaled to their partners. The others that were there were their boats. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But so much fish they fill both boats, and they're all, and bolted are, are about to sink. See, God doesn't do just what you need. God will do more. God will do more. Come on, shout it! God will do more than enough. So Simon Peter saw it. Notice what he does. Notice his response. He fell at Jesus' knees, saying, "Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." So he's acknowledging the lordship of Jesus. Because there's no way, this is not the time to fish. These fish don't show up during this time. I guarantee you, what this man must be supreme in authority for these fish to show up like this, and not just a few, even, but so many. We filled two boats, and they're about to sink. Man, depart from me! I'm a sinful man. Now, watch this. Watch this. Verse nine. For he and all who were with him were what? What were they? They were astonished at the catch of fish which they had what, which they had taken. So it wasn't the amount of fish that caused him to feel so bad about what happened. You know what caused him to feel so bad about what happened? Why didn't I believe him? Why didn't I believe him? I should have believed him. This, this is a powerful man. I should have believed what he said. I should have believed what he told me. I should have believed what the Lord said. I shouldn't have even questioned it for a minute. He said, let down the nets. I let down a net. How, how In his view, how sinful I am, number one, that I wouldn't have obeyed him. Number two, I didn't deserve this. See, Peter was the roughest kind of of all the disciples. I mean, one of the roughest. Fishermen back then were really, you know, sweet, kind of nice guys. Foul language, you know I mean? Pretty rough dudes. So on top of that, number two, guess what else he's thinking? I didn't deserve this. What are you doing this for me for? Any idea how much those fish were worth? Why are you doing this? Why? I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. I don't deserve this, man. See, true faith never acknowledges any aspect of what God does as if I deserved it. True faith knows I didn't. Right. And so obviously Simon knew true faith. I don't deserve this because guess what? I'm a sinner. He was acknowledging my life ain't right. right. I don't do things right. Come on. Yeah. I, I'm someone who certainly isn't living the right kind of life for this to have uh, for this to have happen in my life. But you know what? When God's word speaks and somebody will believe it and act on that word. Yeah. Now he might not have had full faith in what he said because he didn't let down nays- nets. But he did let down one. And God showed him just how good he was. Say, God's goodness is bigger than I can imagine. He don't do it because you deserve it. I said, he don't do it. You're going to see this in another story tonight. He don't do it because you deserve it. You know why he does it? Because he's good. He's good. Now, guess what? He can't do what he wants to do as a good God if you don't what? Take him at his word. Nevertheless, at your word. Nevertheless, at your word. Now, he didn't fulfill all of his word because he didn't let down nets, but he did let down a net. So you got to realize this is significant for me and you. You ready? Yes. You and I need to learn to let down our nets. In other words, obey God. When God tells you to give, give. Amen. When God tells you to honor something in relationship to what he tells you to do, honor it. When God tells you to go and minister to somebody and bless them, go minister to them. Amen. Now, listen, don't do it thinking, oh, my boat's going to fill with fish. No, you do it because you want to obey him. You do it because you want to honor him. Truthfully, you know, Simon could have told him, you know, why don't you use somebody else? There's other boats there. But he wanted to honor this man of God. He wanted to honor him by letting him use his boat. So you got to realize Peter didn't do it to get something back out of it. He did it because he wanted to honor this man of God. You should want to obey God because you want to honor him. And when you do, guess what? God has other things in store for you rather than just what his assignment is. So realize God wants to help us. God wants to be good to us. And he does it, why? Just because he is good. That's all there is to it. Amen? I said amen? Amen. A little further down, verse 12, same chapter. So after this, he of course tells Peter, you come now, you follow me, and guess what? I'm going to help you catch men. So Peter begins to walk with him, become one of his disciples. Verse 12, it happened as he, Jesus, was in a certain city. Now, why does it say a certain city? Because it's not a parable. When it spoke of certain people, certain cities, some people say, well, these are just parables. All the gospels are parabolic. No, they're not. When it says certain, it means it's this way and no other. It's not a parable. It actually happened. So he's in a certain city, and behold, notice this, there was a man full of leprosy, and he saw Jesus. Now, automatically, if you had leprosy, what could you not do? You could not come near, come near people that didn't have leprosy. You had to stay away from them. By law, you were required. You could not get near them. If you got around somebody that didn't have leprosy in that day, obviously, in the context you did it on purpose, they could stone you, for, stone you to death. The law said so. But notice what this man did. This man full of leprosy saw Jesus and what did he do? He fell on his face and he implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, underline this please, you can make me clean. Now here's the sad part of Luke 5:12. The sad part of Luke 5:12 is so many people for so many years have tied this to healing to say, Lord, if it's your will, heal me. If it's not, you won't. But this man didn't say, if it's your will, heal me. But if it's not, you won't. He didn't say that. I said he did not say that. Notice what he said. He fell on his face and he implored him saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can. Circle those two words, please. You can make me clean. He did not say, if it's your will, heal me. But if it's not, you won't. You listening? He said, if it's your will, I know you can do it. But I don't know if you're willing to. Not like, is it your will to heal? He already knew it was his will because he said what? You can. You can heal. You can heal. I know you can. Amen. Are you willing to heal me? And Jesus answers this question once and for all, for everybody about the will of God when it comes to healing. He put out his hand and he touched him and he said what? I am Underline it. Shout it at me, please. I am willing. I am willing. So then he tells him to be what? Be cleansed. And immediately what happens? Leprosy Leprosy left him. We don't ever, ever pray anymore in context to any aspect of healing. God, if it's your will, heal me. Nope, because he already proved it is. Already proved it's his will. So understand this. This is powerful about verse 12. Brother Hagin taught this for years. The average person that struggles with receiving healing does so Not because they question God's ability, they question his willingness. Mm -hmm. Most people who know God don't question his ability, just like this man did not. I know you can do it. He didn't question his ability. You listening? He questioned his willingness. Are you willing to do it for me? And he answers the question, I'm willing. Be cleansed. You will find in most cases, if you go to minister to people, folks, to lay hands on them, You want to talk to them a little bit and find out if they believe God can. But you also got to find out, do they believe it's his will? Because until you erase that question mark in their mind, if it's God's will or not, many will not receive because they'll still be questioning that. I love a statement that E.W. Kenyon made. It's powerful. Uh, I'm probably going to quote it wrong. I I think I posted it today. When, When faith goes beyond, how did I say that? Or how did he say that? When faith goes beyond the reasoning of the mind yeah. and overtakes the thoughts of the mind, I'll guarantee you what, faith will go into action. Yeah. So, in essence, I've got to get to the place where my mind doesn't question the word of God, where I simply, simply accept, what, accept what God's word says. You looking it up for me? Faith comes, faith comes when the word prevails over the thinking process. When the word prevails over the thinking process, faith comes. When the word prevails over the thinking process. Because we try to think things through, guess what that can do? Hinder your faith. If you got what God said, you don't need to actually think it out. It's got to accept it as a fact. And if you do, it's going beyond the thinking process, it's accepting it as a fact. When Jesus said, I'm willing, he very clearly accepted it as a fact, and therefore he was cleansed. Amen? Say "It it is God's will to heal everybody. Now, I guarantee you some might say, yeah, but that was just one leper. There was others he didn't heal. No, Jesus went about healing all, Acts 10, 38. Healing all, knowing it of God, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So to you as a believer, understand both for yourself. How many of you believe God can heal anybody? Raise your hand if you believe God can do it. But see, how many of us might sometimes question, is it his will? It is his will. And we got to erase that question mark, both for us and for others because it's primarily what hinders people from being healed. Now, if you'll drop down to a little further in this exact same area to verse 16. In verse 16, after he had done this, it clearly tells us that he went on to tell them uh, that he himself said to go to the priest, show yourself as a testimony for your healing, because to see that you were actually healed of leprosy in their day, you had to go to the priest. priest had to examine you. He had to confirm it. But I want to show you something really significant in this chapter also about verse 16 about Jesus' life. So we just keep picking up little nuggets all through the book of Luke about the life of Jesus that can help us. Here's another one, verse 16. You ought to underline or highlight this entire verse right here. So he himself often withdrew and we're into the wilderness, and he did what? Pray. Notice this. He himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Wilderness meaning what? Away from everybody else. To get private alone with what? With the Father. Spend time with the Father. I'm going to tell you what. If Jesus often withdrew into private times of prayer with the Father, how many think we should? How many think we need to? If you want to walk in relationship to what God has for your life, know what he has for your life. Guess what? You're going to have to. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. As he did so, look at verse 17. After he had gone off and spent time in prayer, it says it happened on a certain day as he was teaching. Remember, he often withdrew. Say often. Awesome. So he went and spent time in the presence of God consistently. Notice this. It happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, uh, uh, Galilee Judea, and Jerusalem, underline it, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Underline that and then draw a line from that back up to verse 16. You want to know why the power of the Lord was present to heal? Because he withdrew often and spent time in the presence of God. As he spent time in the presence of God, it's the manifest presence of God that is the power of God to heal. And we can see it work far better if we spend more time with the Father. Spend more time with God because he is that very power, that very glory. His manifest presence is what obviously does that through us. Amen? Amen. So this is a key of how you and I can walk in the same thing. Down at the bottom of the chapter, he now picks up Matthew, the tax collector, who becomes a disciple as well. And then a little further down, we're not going to get into all this, but a little further down in verse 33, of the same chapter, he gets asked as to why his disciples are not fasting. The one thing I would point out to you about that is they really didn't care, the Pharisees, whether his disciples fasted or not. They thought because they did, they were somebody great. They thought by their own works, they were proving themselves to God, but they were not. Fasting is not to prove anything to God. Fasting is for you to get the flesh under so you can truly get close uh, in the presence of God and hear from God, amen? But they were already close to God because they had Jesus with them right there every single day. So he goes on and talks about that in verses 33 through verses 39. So now we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 6. He goes on to talk about the very fact that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given, obviously, as a day of rest for man, and therefore was to become a time of worship as well in the day in which they lived. But they, of course, made the law, excuse me, they made the Sabbath a far greater thing in the aspect of what the law said it was of something they felt like that you could not even heal on the Sabbath, which Jesus did. In the very beginning of chapter 6, he heals a man on the Sabbath, and of course, you think they would rejoice in the fact this man is now healed. No, they're all upset because in their eyes, that's doing some type of a work on the Sabbath, which clearly healing, again, was not necessarily a work on the Sabbath, but understand, they were just caught up in a religious aspect of what they were doing, not a relationship with God. He goes on to talk about later on down here in chapter 6, verse 17, how he continues to heal great multitudes of people as they came to hear, the Bible says, and to be healed. Look at verse 17, bottom part of it. Notice those who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. So I just want to point out one thing about that. You should have that underlined or highlighted in your Bible. How do we get healed? We need to hear. We need to hear the word. Faith comes by. Faith comes by, what if I still need healing? You need to hear. You never stop hearing. So they came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. A lot of people don't get healed because they don't hear. They don't take time to listen. They don't take time to come feed on the word of God or feed on it themselves. And I will guarantee you the, the context of what you said for years is true. Faith doesn't come by what you heard. Faith comes by hearing. Then you start in verse 20, which we're not going to look at in detail, what is known as the Beatitudes. And as he talks about this, he's just is simply talking about relationship again to religious leaders of their day who were clearly not walking in the light of humility. And Beatitudes is really just kind of about all being humble and honoring God and doing what God wants you to do with your life. But down in verse 27, he starts talking about the greatest aspect of what is key for me and you walking at our life, and that's walking in love. Verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. See, I told you doing the Bible ain't always easy. I said doing the Bible ain't always easy. But these are the words of Jesus. And in it said today, we got ministers who tell you, you don't need to do what Jesus said. How crazy is that? So you and I need to do what? We need to learn to love our enemies as well and to do good to even those who what? So to do good means we don't return evil for evil. What should you do for those, obviously, who are evil to you? Pray for them, as he goes on to talk about. You're to pray for them. Notice verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. So this very clearly simply talks about you and I walking in the aspect of love. Verse 30, because this can get confusing. Give to everyone who asks of you. So does that mean every time somebody walks up to me, no matter where I'm at, I'm supposed to give whatever they ask? Now, if you did that, you would violate other parts of Scripture. The Bible says, he who does not work shall not eat. Should I give to somebody who's capable of working, but they don't want to, they just want to ask me for money? No, I would be violating the Bible, and I would be a poor steward. I would be, in essence, in a form of doing something Scripture teaches me not to do, And that would be actually encouraging somebody to do something the Bible tells them they should do that they don't want to do. You have to use discernment in giving. Because in this phrase it talks about giving to all who ask. It just simply means you don't just give to one group of people. You listening? You don't just give to one set of form of, of set of individuals. Meaning that, notice the context here, what do you start off with? Love your enemies. So he's saying, you don't just give to those that obviously are nice to you and give to you. Come on, somebody. Sometimes you can actually turn a person's heart around by giving to somebody who may not like you very well, but all of a sudden might need your help. And that's why he says, give to all who ask, because all he's saying here is he's talking about all different groups of people. He's not saying everybody who walks up to you and asks you for something, you give to them. If I gave whatever somebody asked of me individually... Guess what you would probably not be able to do? Take care of your family. Because once people start finding out you'll give money to whoever asks, I guarantee what? Everybody who wants something is going to start coming to you because you know what they're going to say? Well, he'll give whatever you ask of him. No matter what it is, you ask, well, guess what? What if you obviously do that and don't take care of your family? Then the Bible says you're worse than an infidel. I knew somebody one time would give to everybody that asked them and they couldn't pay their bills. And I said, you know what? There's a truth behind giving and receiving, sowing and reaping, but that doesn't mean you give to everybody who asks you. You have to use wisdom. You do have to obviously take care of your family. The Bible says so. And by you giving to everybody that asks you, you're not taking care of your family. So the give to all here is in reference to all types of people. It's not everybody that walks up and asks. You can't ever take a verse out of its setting and study it properly. And he's talking here about people, obviously, that you might not even normally consider giving to, that he says you should consider giving to, even those who may not like you. You still here? I can tell you testimony after testimony of people who obeyed God and gave to people that they know didn't like them, and it totally changed their heart. Because they were like, why would you give to me? Why would you help me? I certainly haven't been very nice to you. Amen. And God can touch their heart. So we don't look at the outward. Here's another way to say that verse. And again, you study all of this in context and you'll learn this. Here's another way to say that verse. We don't give based on what we see on the outside. We give based on obedience on the inside. What's God telling us to do? And if God's telling us to give, we obey God. Amen. Now, if you go down a little further in the chapter, you're still with me, aren't you? Yes. Notice this. He goes on to talk about, of course, not judging people. That's talking about not judging them to condemnation. I, I hear this all the time, man, still today. I just love believers who just love everybody and aren't judgmental, da 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 So define what you mean by that. Because I'll tell you what most mean. Most mean that you don't ever bring up their sin. You don't ever talk about wrong things they do or anything like that. Because clearly, if you do, you're judging them. Well, number one, Jesus did it. Jesus told people to go and not sin anymore. He clearly knew they were. Otherwise, why did he tell them to go and not sin anymore? So judgment in relationship to the Bible means you and I don't focus on what everybody else does in the natural. We focus on what the Bible teaches us to share the gospel. But at the same time, are we warned to actually watch what friends we have? How can I choose what friends I have if I don't have some form of judgment? of the type of lifestyle they're living, right? But what we judge according to Scripture is we are allowed to judge all things. We just don't judge the heart of the individual. That's the key. The Bible says, he who is spiritual judges all things. Say it. He who is spiritual judges all things. That means governed by your spirit. If you're walking maturely by your spirit, you can judge all things. Things are not people. I could look at what you're doing. It's hurting your life. If I don't come and talk to you about it as a loving brother in the Lord, guess what? You're going to keep hurting your life. So if I don't judge that as wrong, not you, what you're doing. And this is the problem where the judgment thing comes in. You separate the person from the act. When you see what they're doing, you say that's wrong. I'm not judging you like saying you're this horrible sinner going to hell. I don't know if you are or not. No one knows the heart of a man except the man himself. So I'm not judging your heart. I'm judging what you're doing is wrong because it's wrong, but I'm not judging the individual. Amen? But I want you to see this. Verse 40, you still with me? A disciple, say a disciple. So what is a disciple really? Ma- basic understanding of what, a, of what a disciple would be. A student, yeah. A student of somebody else, you know, wax on, wax off, karate kid. You know, you, you are somebody who wants to glean from somebody else who you look at what they have the ability to do and you want to actually learn from them how to do what they actually already know how to do. As an example for me as a bull rider, I wanted to find somebody that actually knew how to do this and become a student, learn from them. Now to do that, I couldn't come to them and act like I know more than they I had to come to them with an absolute heart open to receive anything they said, no matter how hard it seemed, right? If I want to get to the place where they are, I have to be willing to be submissive, teachable, get rid of pride, and let them tell me whatever they need to, and accept it and apply it. If I do, what do I do? I become like them. I then get to experience the same kind of results. So notice uh, Luke 6, 40, a disciple is not above his teacher. Never, ever, never. A disciple is never above their teacher. Doesn't mean I may not know some things about life that the person I'm learning from maybe doesn't know about. But I'm talking about what I'm wanting to learn from them. Now, when it comes to Jesus, I have a word for you. Jesus knows far more than you'll ever know. And there's nothing you're going to teach him. You're the student. Come on. He's the instructor. Right? Right? Yes. He's the master. Yes. I'm the student. Amen. I'm the submitted one. Yes. So a disciple is not above his teacher. Watch this, underline it. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. What a promise. Are we not to be disciples of Jesus? A disciple who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher now the context here to be perfectly trained means to be well trained well what's what's well trained i'm submissive yes. i'm submissive i take what i learn from the bible now how does jesus disciple you well guess what he's not going to come down here personally Now, i could i'm not saying he couldn't do it but according to scripture we find no evidence that he'll come down here personally and spend time with you personally and teach you right. so how's he going to do that how's he going to disciple me through his word yes. through the holy spirit and through godly leadership. Amen. But what if all of a sudden I start rejecting all these things? Rejecting what the word says. Well, I know, or, you know how that goes, right? How does, how does that, how does how do people reject the word? Well, I know the Bible says that. So you're no longer a disciple. The moment you added the but, you're no longer a disciple. Because a disciple is willing to fully submit themselves unto the other one. And what they say and, and not and not in any way add or take away from it. Just do what they tell you right the word say the word word. holy spirit say the holy spirit Spirit. and say leadership leadership. now in that order here's why because the word above all has to be honored and acknowledged it doesn't matter what you say the holy spirit tells you or what you say leadership tells you it all has to come back to the word of god if it is not lining up with the word but here's the problem Some people clearly all of a sudden start wanting to live a different lifestyle than the Word. And you know what they'll start saying? Well, I don't know if I believe that anymore. Well, it doesn't matter if you believe it anymore. What matters is, is does it still still say that? Because if it does, it don't matter what you believe. You can believe what you want. But if you don't allow Jesus to well-train you, you're not going to live like Him. You're going to start backing down from walking with Jesus... And you're going to start going the opposite direction. You know what that's called? Backslidden. You know how many backslidden Christians they are? There are, sadly, too many. All because they once were walking as a disciple, and then they chose to start rejecting the Word of God. Say, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because if you are well-trained, you're going to be just like your teacher. You know, Paul said it this way, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Amen. Luke 6, on further down, we're going to look at verses 43, 44, 45. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. You get anything tonight? For every tree is known by its own fruit. Every tree is known by what? What's a fruit known by? Lifestyle. Fruit, what they actually see of a lifestyle consistent. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. Verse 45 is the key verse we wanted to get to. A good man, he who lives a good life, is a good man who out of the good treasure, underline that please, out of the good treasure of his heart. You want to live a good lifestyle? You got to have a good treasure in your heart. A good man out of a good treasure in his heart brings forth what? What does he bring forth? Tell me how I'm to live a good life. What are you treasuring up in your heart? How often do you miss church? How often do you not go to the Word and spend time with God? How often do you not feed on the things of God? How often do you feed on things that are actually not good, opposed to God? See, a good man is going to live a good life out of what? The good treasure. Good treasure of his heart, he'll bring forth good. But an evil man or one who obviously lives a life that's not good is going to do so out of what? The evil treasure in his heart. He didn't say the evil spirit is treasuring up what he's treasuring up, what he's piling up. For, notice this, clearly at the end of the verse it says, guess what? This is so powerful. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. I mean, you know, James says your mouth sets on fire the course of nature you're going to take. Right? It's how, whether you're going to live a good life or a bad life is going to come based on what you're coming out of your mouth, but it's based on what what's in your heart. Right. Right. So you want to live a good life? Yes. Better treasure up what's good. Yeah. Better keep filling up that treasure of your heart with what's good, yeah. because as you speak it, you got to refill it. Yeah. Keep filling it up. Keep filling it up. And out of the abundance doesn't mean once in a while you don't say some stupid stuff. Anybody ever say some stupid stuff? Yeah. But you know what you need to do? To understand and know that's not what's going to affect me. It's out of the abundance. It's out of the abundance. How I many you want to live a good life? Let me see your hand. Yeah. You got to have what? You got to have a good treasure. Yeah. That's got to outweigh anything of evil that gets treasured in your life. If it does, it'll change your life. Yeah. It'll change your life. Forty. That's why getting to God's house is so critical. Yeah. If you're paying attention, guess what you're doing? You're storing up a good treasure. Tell your neighbor, I'm adding to my treasure chest right now. So Say this to him. Say, I'm adding good to my treasure chest right now. You are if you're paying attention. You are if you're listening. You are if you're taking in what God's speaking to you. All right, verse 46. Verse 46. These are powerful verses. 46, 47, 48, 49. Why do you call me, Jesus said. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do the things which I say. What do you mean, Lord, Lord? You're my Lord, and therefore you are supreme in authority. You're my Lord, and therefore you are. Lord means supreme in authority. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? You're my Lord, and you are supreme in authority. Why do you say that, but you don't do what I say? Because the only way anybody, 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 say anybody. Anybody. The only way anybody, Romans 10, 13, gets born again, you got to make him the Lord, not the Savior make him the Lord of your life. Amen. Why don't I make him my Savior? No, He is your Savior. You got to make Him your Lord to receive His the Savior's work. Amen. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who acknowledge Him as the Lord of my life, Amen. 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 Well, we didn't do that just to get a salvation experience. Jesus is saying so. Don't just call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you. Look at this, verse 47. Whoever comes to me, that's coming to context to hear what he has to say, salvation, and hears my sayings, underline it, and does them. Yeah. Wow, I didn't think we're supposed to hear what Jesus says anymore. That's the Old Testament. Oh, no. Well, if you are going to not listen to Jesus anymore and do what he says, keep building on sand, you little sand builder. Yes. Right, right. And you're going to have some horrible things happen in your life when storms come. Thus said Jesus Christ. I'm not going with the modern day preacher, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going with Jesus all the way to the end. Amen. I don't care what some modern day preacher says. Amen. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings, underline it, and what? And what? And what? So you can't just sit here in church and hear it. We, we just heard tonight about the importance of a good treasure. But what if you walk out of here and you don't put in a good treasure? Won't work. Won't, won't live a good life. You listening? Notice this. I'm going to show you who this guy's like. Who is this person like that comes to me, here's what I says, and they actually do it. So I am Lord. I am supreme in authority. Well, this is a man who's building a house. We're all building a house, by the way. Building a lifestyle. He dug deep. Say dug deep. Notice what he did. He laid the foundation on what? What is the rock? What is the rock? Now notice this is a small R. What is the rock? You know what this is this is similar to what jesus said to peter on this rock i will build my church right. what's the rock you see a lot of people miss this this is powerful let me let me go off onto this rabbit trail for a minute do you remember when actually jesus asked the disciples who do men say that i am right. right well of course they're saying well this god be one of the prophets raised from the dead maybe elijah i don't know elijah's one of these guys the work he's doing I mean, we only read about this from the Old Testament prophets. We ain't seen anybody besides them do this kind of stuff. But then he turns and he says, but who do you say I am? Remember what Peter said? Didn't hesitate. You're the Christ. Wait a minute. You're the son of the living God. Now, Jesus responds. See, where Jesus' words of response were is the key to the rock. Listen to the response of his words. Ready? Listen to this. He said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father did. There's the rock. There's the rock. What's the rock? I'm going to tell you what the rock is, Peter. The rock is you got revelation from my father about me, the word. Revelation of the word is what you build your life on that hell cannot prevail against. When you have revelation of the word, you become one with the word. Satan's in trouble. Because the moment you become one with the word, knowing the name of Jesus has power, you're you're going to whip his tail. The moment you come into revelation that healing belongs to you, sickness and disease is gone. Right. See, it's revelation of the word. The rock is not the father. The rock is not Jesus. The rock is revelation. You didn't learn this on your own, Peter. You didn't get this by flesh and blood. You got this from my father. How do you get something from the father? Revelation. He revealed it to you. How did you do that? He had to done it by obviously the way of his spirit because God's a spirit. You listening? This isn't something you just got stored up in your head. Somehow God revealed this to your inner man. Even followed, he revealed it to you. You listening? And then Jesus said, and on this rock. So see, everybody jumps past what Jesus said. Well, the rock is Christ. Now that's who he is. He is Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the son of God. That's not what he's going to build his church on. He's going to build his church on people getting revelation that he's the son of God. If you have no revelation, he's the son of God. You can't be born again. And revelation of what God speaks to you about him, the word. He is the word. He is the Word. And when you get revelation from God about the Word, anything at all, guess what? In that area that you have revelation, hell is defeated. I mean, hell is already defeated, but you know what I'm saying? The gates of hell. Why do the... When somebody dies of a disease or sickness, I'm sorry, but their body got defeated by the gates of hell. That's a work of Satan. It's a work of Satan. I'm glad they're in heaven. But they shouldn't have been defeated by any disease or sickness. Should they? Where did sickness and disease come from? Satan brought it. Well, guess what? The context of the gates of hell are. It's talking about the authority of Satan. We should not be defeated by anything that comes from Satan. Are you still here? What should we be doing? Walking in victory over it. Why are Christians not? They don't have revelation. Healing's theirs. They don't have revelation that I'm the blessed of the Lord. They don't have revelation, God's my source. Amen? Amen. Amen. And it doesn't matter what I face. God's my source. Praise God. I know by the authority given to me how to exercise that authority in this earth and get what I need. If I don't have revelation, guess what the sons of Sceva didn't have when that demon messed with them? They didn't have revelation who Jesus was. But guess who did? Paul did. And those demons knew it. They got their tail kicked. And guess what they didn't do? They didn't mess with Paul anymore. Right. The gates of hell will not prevail against those who get revelation of the word. Yeah. Can you say amen? amen? And this is why he tells you here, you can't just hear my sayings. You got to do them. You got to put application to them. And as you, as you begin to develop an understanding and get revelation of the word and act upon it, you're digging deep and now you're, you got a foundation on a rock, man. Notice, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house, verse 48, and, notice, could not shake it. Underline it. It could not shake it. Why? For it was founded on the rock. You know another phrase, the Greek language for the word founded? It was well built. That house was well built. So if you come to Jesus, you hear the word, you put application, revelation's going to come. You are building on a rock. You listening? Because you're acting on the word, faith will come, revelation will rise, faith without works is dead. You're founded on a rock. Verse 49, but how about he who heard and did nothing with what he heard? It's like a man who built on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Say it doesn't have to be that way. What do we need to do? Come to Jesus... Hear what he says, apply it in our life. The more we do, revelation will come. Chapter 7, you still with me? We're going to look at one more story here in chapter 7. For all of chapter 7, because there's a lot that could be covered. We're just going to cover the first 10 verses of chapter 7. Notice this, this is powerful. When he, Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There was a certain centurion. So once again, certain, we know this isn't a parable. A centurion was what? There was a a Roman soldier who had, in most cases, around 100 men under his employ. In other words, he was a a sergeant of arms over them or some form of category of authority over them, had 100 men under him uh, to to be able to go and do war, to go and do battle. So this certain centurion had a servant. Say servant. The servant was dear to him. And he was sick and he was ready to die. Verse three. So when he heard about Jesus, underline it. Come on. Yes. When he heard about Jesus, what do people need to uh, what need, need what do people need to hear about when they're around you, Jesus? Yes. Come on. Yes. What do people need to hear about when they're around you, Jesus? Yes. So when they heard about, obviously somebody been talking about him, or he wouldn't heard about him. Right. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come. And he his servant. Now, the other accounts of the gospels say that he went. So which is it? It's this account. He didn't actually go. In their day, if you sent somebody to go on your behalf, in their day, it was the same as if you were there. So somebody else giving an account of that would actually say, well, you were there. Because in their eyes, it's just like you're there. Same thing. But in fact, he sent others on his behalf. He never did go to Jesus face to face. Think of that. He actually just sent those who represented, obviously, him, who were actually Jews. Verse four. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was what deserving. 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 They said that on their own. Right. He didn't tell them to say that. You're going to see not the. You're going to see clearly did not be, uh, did not believe that. Didn't say that. That was them on, on behalf of him. They loved him. Watch. Here's why. Notice says verse five. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. A Roman soldier built a church. A Roman soldier, a Gentile built a church for the Jews in his area so they could worship their God. So they're pleading on his behalf. He didn't tell them to say that. He didn't tell them to go and plead with him. Not at all. Notice this, verse 6. So Jesus went with them. When he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent more friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. So this is what the servant actually, excuse me, this is what the centurion actually said to him. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Notice this, for I am not worthy, underline it, that you should enter under my roof. Right. So clearly he didn't say, come on, man, I've built a church for your people. You should do this for me. No, he didn't even feel worthy that Jesus would come under his roof. Jesus tells these others, I'll go and heal his servant." You know what he just said? I'll come to his house. Before he gets there, he has somebody else meet him. He says, I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. Now listen, most people would have said, let him come. But this guy is so incredible, so unique, so different. He's actually even saying, you don't need to come to my house because truthfully, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. Seven, therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. I didn't even think that I was one Who was worthy to stand in your presence. Think about that. I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. Underline this please. But say the word. Say the word word, and my servant might possibly get healed. What did he say? Now I want you to get a hold of another powerful truth tonight. Watch this. Say the word and my servant will be healed. Notice the very next statement. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes. Another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The key that I missed for years about this, it's not about being placed under authority. It's about the fact that he knows how authority works. Authority is released through words. You couldn't have that ability had it not been given to you by somebody above you. But authority is released through words. He knows this. I'm a soldier. I release authority through words. When I release authority through these words of mine, these soldiers have to obey. They got to do what I tell them to do. Notice this. Nine. Jesus, when he heard these things. Wow, watch this. When he heard these things, what did he do? Tell me out loud, please. He marveled. He marveled. Come on, man. He marveled. So again, verse 8, I'm a man under authority. I say to one go, he goes another, come and come. He comes, my servant, do this and he does it. Jesus heard it. He marveled at him. He turned around and he said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, underline it, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. There's only two people in all the gospels that Jesus says has great faith. They were both Gentiles. Neither one were Jews. But I'll tell you what they knew. This man... When he speaks, his words have to come to pass because they're words filled with authority. They're words of authority. So he says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. You might want to write this down. This is the key. Great faith knows God's word is the final authority. Great faith knows. Great faith knows God's word is the final authority. Because guess what? Even though you know what God's word says, there's other words coming at you. You listening? Just even with your brain, you could look at a situation, know what God's word says, and guess what's going to come to your brain? Words, thoughts. What's going to determine whether what God said will come to pass in my life or not? What's going to determine whether what God's word said will come to pass or not? Do I take his word as final authority? That's the key. That's the key. He took what Jesus said as final authority. That's all he needed. Doesn't matter what anybody says about my servant. Doesn't matter what even my servant says. Doesn't matter what the situation looks like or my brain thinks or what obviously is coming at my mind thinking this servant's going to die. All I know is if I've got his word, that's final authority. You know what that means? It is settled. It is done. Period. I don't care what my body says. I don't care what my brain says. I don't care what demons say. I don't care what my mom says. I don't care what my dad says. I don't care what my siblings say. I don't care what my family says. I don't care what anybody else in the context of this world says. I don't care what demons try to say. I don't care what the President says. I don't care what the Vice President says. I don't care what anybody else says. If I've got what God says... I have final authority. But until you come to that place to know God's word is final authority. How come this man had great faith? Say it. He knew God's word was final authority. Say it. He knew God's word was final authority. He knew all I got to do is have your word. That's it. That's the final authority. That's all I need. It's, It's more than just understanding believing God's word. Because if you say that's final authority, guess what? You ain't taking anything else but what God said has final authority. That's all I need right there. That's all I need. If I got what he said, that's all I need. As far as I'm concerned, guess what? It's a done deal because his word's final authority in my life. That, that takes, ladies and gentlemen, becoming one with the word for us as believers. And this man wasn't even born again. But as a soldier, he understood. You know what he knew? Remember what he said? Remember what he said? I say to a soldier, go, what does a soldier do? Why? Why does a soldier go? Why does the soldier go? My word to that soldier is final authority. Doesn't matter what anybody else tells him. If I say go, I don't care if 50 of his buddies tell him not to go. If I say go, he knows that's final authority. That's what I must do. And I know you. I know you, Lord. If you speak a word, it's final authority. Whatever you say, it has to obey you. If you call my servant healed, disease, that sickness, whatever it is, has to obey can't stay your words final authority a lot of people miss that about this story that you got to get to the place where god's word is what final authority